Chapter 7. I made my next trip to New York a week later in a strange state of mind. In part, I was elated by my new dream, and in part, I was deeply depressed and thoroughly confused. The more I learned about the nature of the enemy in the big town, the more my own lack of qualifications to combat him stood out in sharp relief. The enemy lurked in the social conditions that make up the slums of New York, ready to grab lonesome and love-starved boys. He held out easy promises of security and freedom, of happiness, of retribution. He called his promises by innocent names, clubs, not murderous gangs, pot, not narcotics, fish jumps, not an anger-filled, unsatisfying sex stimulation, and jitterbugging, not a desperate fight to the death. He built in his victims' personalities that were almost impossible to reach. He threw up around these boys a wall of thick protective hardness. He made them proud of being hard. Against his strength, I considered my own weakness. I had none of the usual weapons. I had no experience. I had no money. I had no organization backing me. I was afraid of the fight. And suddenly, I found myself remembering another occasion when I'd seen a fight coming and had been afraid. It happened years ago when I was a boy and we had just moved to Pittsburgh. I didn't win any most likely to succeed awards when I was growing up. I was always pretty frail and even skinnier than I am now, if such a thing is possible. The very idea of a fistfight left me shaking. Still, the funny thing is that all through my high school years, I never had to fight because I had a reputation for being extremely tough. That ridiculous situation came about in a peculiar way, and the more I thought about it, the more I wondered if it did not have significance for me now. There was a boy in school named Chuck, who was a bully. He was the first boy I heard about when we got to Pittsburgh. Before we'd unpacked our trunks, I learned that Chuck always beat up the new kids, and that I had better be particularly careful because he was especially tough on preacher's kids. Chuck had me shaken before I ever saw him. What was I going to do when we finally did meet? I asked God this question, and an answer came quickly and clearly. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. I knew it was a Bible quotation, and I looked it up just to check on my recollection of the passage. Zechariah 4, 6 it was. And then and there, I took it from my motto. When the time came to face Chuck, I decided... I would simply lean on this promise. God would give me a holy boldness that would be equal to any bully. All too soon, I had a chance to test my theory. One spring afternoon, I started home from school alone. I was wearing new clothes, I remember, which made it particularly important that I should not get into a fight. New clothes in our family were too carefully budgeted to be ruined in a street brawl. Suddenly, ahead, I saw a boy walking toward me. I knew in an instant that this would be Chuck. He was strutting down the opposite side of the street, but the instant he saw me, he crossed over and bore down on me like a heavy, snorting, angry bull. Chuck was an enormous boy. He must have weighed 50 pounds more than I, and he towered above me so that I had to bend my neck to look him in the eye. Chuck stopped dead in my path, legs spread and hands on hips. You're the preacher's kid. It wasn't a question, it was a challenge, and I'll admit that in that moment all my hopes of holy boldness vanished. I was scared to the core of me. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I kept repeating this sentence over and over to myself while Chuck convinced to give his opinion of me. First he picked on the fact that I looked stupid in my new clothes. Then he worked over the obvious truth that I was a weakling. After that he had a few words to say about preacher's kids in general. By my spirit, saith the Lord. I still had not spoken. But inside me an amazing event was taking place. I felt fear melting and in its place came confidence and joy. I looked up at Chuck and smiled. Chuck was getting madder and madder. His face turned red as he challenged me to fight. Still, I smiled. Chuck started to circle me with his fists clenched, 
pumping his arms slowly and taking short feints toward me. In his face, though, was a hint of alarm. He could see that, for some unfathomable reason, this little shrimp was truly not afraid. I circled, too, never taking my eye off of his, and all the while I smiled. Finally, Chuck hit me. It was a hesitant little blow that didn't hurt, and it happened to catch me on balance, so I wasn't thrown. I laughed low and secretly. <laughs> Chuck stopped his circling. He dropped his fists. He backed off, and then he turned and took off down the street. Next day at school, I began to hear how I'd beaten up the biggest bully in town. Chuck had been telling everyone. He said I was the toughest guy he ever fought. Apparently, he laid it on thick, because always after that, I was treated with respect by the entire school. Perhaps I should have told the kids the truth, but I never did. I had a kind of insurance policy in my reputation, and hating to fight as I did, I wasn't about ready to turn my policy in. Now, I wondered if there wasn't something important in that memory. Wasn't I facing the same problem, an enemy far bigger and more powerful than I? Perhaps there was a curious paradox in my lack of strength. Perhaps in this very weakness lay a kind of power, because I knew absolutely that I could not depend upon myself. I could not fool myself into thinking that money or high-placed connections or a degree in sociology would be adequate to this situation, because I didn't have these things. If I were right in dreaming about a new beginning and a new environment for these boys and girls, perhaps God would choose just such a palpably ill-equipped person as I, so that the work from the very start would depend on him alone, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. I decided to take a first step toward making my dream come true. The very first thing I needed to know was whether I had any right to be glimpsing such visions. Was it really possible for teenage New York gang members to change in the radical way I was dreaming about? I remembered how Grandfather insisted that at the heart of the gospel message was a transforming experience. I knew by memory the passage in scripture that he was referring to. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So if these boys were going to change dramatically, the transformation would have to come about in their hearts. I knew I could never bring this about. It would have to be the work of the Holy Spirit, but perhaps I could act as a channel through which the Spirit could reach these boys. There was one way to find out. So far, I had only walked and listened in the city. Now I would make my move. I would speak to these boys, trusting the Holy Spirit to reach them where I could not. I started making inquiries around New York. What were the toughest, hardest gangs in town? Time and again, two names recurred. The Chaplains and the Mau Maus. Both were in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. These gangs have their turfs in one of the world's largest housing developments, Fort Greene Projects. More than 30,000 people live in these towering apartments, most of them African-American and Puerto Rican, and a heavy percentage of them on relief. The fighting gangs that have been spawned in these areas are segregated. The chaplains are African-American boys, the Mau Mau Spanish. The two gangs do not fight each other, but join together to protect their turf against outside gangs, and now they had declared war on the police. The boys had a rather original method of attack. They waited on a rooftop with a sandbag balanced on the ledge. When a police officer passed by, they tried to drop the 80-pound bag on him. Their timing was not yet perfected, and so far they had missed, but they were getting closer. The police in retaliation were using their nightsticks at the slightest provocation and prohibiting more than two or three boys to gather together at a time. 
I decided there could be no more telling testing ground for the Holy Spirit than Fort Greene. Early one Friday morning, I picked up a friend of mine, a trumpet player named Jimmy Stahl, and the two of us drove over the Brooklyn Bridge and into the teeming brick and glass jungle called Fort Greene Housing Project. We parked our car near the public school on Edward Street and began our experiment. You stand here near this lamppost, I told Jimmy, and start blowing. If we get a crowd, I can step up on the base of the post and talk to them. What do you want me to play? Why not Onward Christian Soldiers? So Jimmy began to play Onward Christian Soldiers on his trumpet. He played it over and over. He made it lively and he made it loud. Windows of the walk-ups across the street flew open and heads popped out. Then children began to swarm out of the buildings. Dozens of little children. They were excited by the music and kept asking, Is a circus coming, mister? Are we going to have a parade? I told Jimmy just to keep blowing. Next, the teenagers began to arrive. They all seemed to be in uniform. Some of the boys were brilliant red jackets with black armbands and the two letters MM sewn boldly on the back. Others wore tight tapering trousers, bright shirts, and continental shoes with thin soles and pointed toes. These boys carried canes. Just about every teenager there wore a sharp-looking alpine hat with a narrow brim. Just about everyone else wore sunglasses. Lord, I said to myself, they're reaching for something fine here. They all want to belong to something bigger than they are. And they all want not to be alone. After Jimmy played his piece 15 or 20 times, a crowd of perhaps 100 boys and girls had gathered. They milled about shouting to each other and to us. Obscenities mingled with the catcalls. I climbed up on the lamp base and began to talk. The uproar increased. I didn't know what to do next. Jimmy was shaking his head. They can't hear you, he formed with his lips. And at that moment, the problem was taken out of my hands. There was a sudden lull in the shouts from the kids over their heads. I saw a police car pull to the curb. Officers stepped out and started working their way through the crowd, poking fiercely with their nightsticks. All right, break it up. Move on. The youngsters parted to let the police through, but closed ranks again behind them. Get down from there, one of the officers said to me. When I was facing him, he said, What are you trying to do, start a riot? I'm preaching. Well, you're not preaching here. We've got enough trouble in this neighborhood without having a mob scene on our hands. Now the boys and girls got into the act. They shouted that the police couldn't stop me from preaching. It was against the Constitution, they said. The police disagreed. Before Jimmy and I knew what was happening, we were being shoved bodily through the crowd toward the police car. At the station house, I picked up the theme the kids had used. Let me ask you something, I said. Isn't it my right as a citizen to speak on a public street? You can, admitted the police, as long as you speak under an American flag. So half an hour later, Jimmy started to blow. Onward, Christian soldiers, again. This time, we had an enormous American flag floating behind us, borrowed from the sympathetic principal of the school. And this time, instead of preaching from a lamppost based, I had a piano stool. Jimmy blew to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. Again, windows flew open and small children swarmed around us. And again, we were faced a few minutes later with a hooting, catcalling mob. The only difference was that now we were heroes. Because once again, we had been tapped by the arm of the law. Our new popularity, though, did not improve the manners of our audience. I stood on my stool and once again tried to raise my voice above the din. I am a country preacher, I told them. 300 miles from home and I have a message for you. Nobody was listening. Directly in front of me, a boy and girl were doing the fish, the grinding hips that brought whistles and clapping from onlookers. Others picked it up, cigarettes hanging sideways from their mouths, bodies quivering with excitement. It was hardly the setting for a sermon. In despair, I bowed my head. Lord, I said, I can't even get their attention. If you are doing a work here... I will have to ask you even for this. While I was still praying, the change began. 
It was the smallest children who settled down first, but when I opened my eyes, I noticed that a lot of the older boys who had been leaning up against the school fence, smoking, had straightened up, taken their hats off, and were now standing with heads slightly bowed. I was so startled by the sudden silence that I was at a loss for words. When finally I did begin to speak, I chose John 3.16 as my text. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I told them that God loved them as they were. Right then, he knew what they were. He knew their hatred and their anger. He knew that some of them had committed murder. But God also saw what they were going to be in the future, not only what they had been in the past. That was all. I had said what I had to say, and I stopped. A heavy, eloquent silence hung over the street. I could hear the flag flapping in a light breeze. I told the boys and girls then that I was going to ask for something special to happen to them. I was going to ask for a miracle that in the next moment... Their lives would be completely changed. I bowed my head again and prayed that the Holy Spirit do his work. I raised my head. Nobody moved. I asked if there was anyone who wanted to come up from where we could talk. No response. It was an awkward situation. I'd made an experiment in letting the Spirit lead, and he didn't seem to be leading anywhere. And then, suddenly, I heard myself saying, without any intention on my part, All right now, they tell me that you've got a couple of pretty tough gangs here in Fort Greene. I want to talk to your presidents and your vice presidents. If you are so big and tough, you won't mind coming up and shaking hands with a skinny preacher. I still don't know why I said it, but as I look back on it now, it was perhaps the best thing I could possibly have said. For a minute, nobody stirred. Then from the rear, someone called, What's the matter, Buckboard? You scared? Slowly, a big colored boy left his station at the rear of the crowd and started to work forward. A second boy followed. This one was carrying a cane, and both were wearing sunglasses. On their way through the crowd, they picked up two more boys, and all four grouped themselves in front of the piano stool. The big one stepped forward another few inches. Slip me some skin, preacher, he said. I'm Buckboard, president of the chaplains. I was still innocent of the slang of New York, and when he held out his hand, I tried to grasp it. Just slip it, preach, said Buckboard, and he slid his open palm along mine. He stood for a minute, examining me curiously. You're all right, preacher. You really bugged me. Buckboard then introduced me to his vice president, stagecoach, and to his two warlords. What was I going to do now? With my heart pounding, I nodded to Jimmy, and we walked with the four boys a few yards away from the crowd. Stagecoach kept saying that our message was coming through. You know, Davy, he said, there's a little old lady comes around here with a black cape and a basket of candy bars, and she's always after the boys to stop bopping. She's okay, but she never comes through. I told the four boys, it wasn't I who was coming through, but the Holy Spirit. I told them he was trying to reach inside their pride. And your arrogance, too, I said, looking directly in their eyes. And your complacency. That's all just a shell to hide the real scared, lonely you. The Holy Spirit wants to get inside that shell and help you start all over again. What we supposed to do, man? I looked at Jimmy, but his expression didn't help me. In a church, I might have asked these boys to come forward and kneel at the altar, But how could you ask anyone to do that on a public street in front of friends? Still, maybe it was just such a bold step that was needed. The change in their lives that we were asking was drastic, so maybe the symbol had to be drastic too. What are you supposed to do, I said. Why, I want you to kneel down right here on the street and ask the Holy Spirit to come into your lives so that you will become new men, new creatures in Christ, is what the Bible says. This can happen to you too. There was a long pause. For the first time, I was vaguely aware of the crowd that was waiting very quietly to see what was going to happen. Finally, stagecoach said in a voice that was strangely hoarse, Buckboard, 
You want to? I, I will if you will. And before my astonished eyes, these two leaders of one of the most feared fighting gangs in all of New York slowly dropped to their knees. Their warlords followed their lead. They took their hats off and held them respectfully in front of them. Two of the boys had been smoking. Each took his cigarette out of his mouth and flipped it away, where it lay smoldering in the gutter while I said a very short prayer. Lord Jesus, I said, here are four of your own children doing something that is very, very hard. They are kneeling here before everyone and asking you to come into their hearts and make them new. They want you to take away the hate and the fighting and the loneliness. They want to know for the first time in their lives that they are really loved. They are asking this of you, Lord, and you will not disappoint them. Amen. Buckboard and stagecoach got up. The two warlords followed. They did not lift their heads. I suggested they might want to get off by themselves for a while, maybe find a church somewhere. Still without speaking, the boys turned and started to make their way through the crowd. Someone called out, Hey, Buckboard, what's it like when you got religion? Buckboard told them to lay off, and he was taunted no more. I suppose if someone had really rubbed him the wrong way, he wouldn't have been saved enough to take it nonviolently. Jimmy and I left Fort Greene with our heads swimming. The fact was that we had not expected God to answer us in such a dramatic manner. Buckboard, stagecoach, and two warlords fall into their knees on the street corner. It was just too much to believe. Frankly, we'd been better prepared for the reaction of the Mau Mau leaders. They were there in the crowd, too. Watching the transformation in Buckboard and Stagecoach with mingled contempt and fascination. After the chaplains had departed, the crowd began to call for them. Israel! Nikki! You're next! Come on! Them! Guys weren't afraid! You going to chicken out? Such shouts urged them forward. Israel, the president of the gang, was as nice a boy as I've met. He stuck out his hand and shook mine like a gentleman. Nikki was something else, I remember thinking as I looked at him. That's the hardest face I've ever seen. How do you do, Nicky? I said. He left me standing with my hand outstretched. He wouldn't even look at me. He was puffing away at a cigarette, shooting nervous little jets of smoke out the side of his mouth. Go to hell, preacher, he said. He had an odd, strangled way of speaking, and he stuttered badly over, time, over some of his sounds. You don't think much of me, Nicky, I said, but I feel different about you. I love you, Nicky. I took a step toward him. You come near me, preacher. He said in that tortured voice, I'll kill you. You could do that, I agreed. You could cut me in a thousand pieces and lay them out in the street. Every piece would love you. But as I said it, I was thinking, and it wouldn't do a bit of good, not with you, Nicky. There's no love on earth that could reach you. Before we left Brooklyn, we put Buckboard and Stagecoach in touch with a local minister who could follow their spiritual growing pains. But I think, I said to Jimmy, we'd better check in on them from time to time, too. To be perfectly honest, neither one of us could rid himself of the suspicion that the boys were having some fun with us. But when I intimated as much to Gwen on my return home, she scolded me. David Wilkerson, she said, don't you realize that you got exactly what you wanted? You asked the Holy Spirit for a miracle, and now that you've got one, you're trying to argue it away. People who don't believe in miracles shouldn't pray for them. <laughs>